Welcome to the June 17th, 2021 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. In this week's edition, we consider the role of the hypoxia pathway in regulating neutrophil migration, explore the relationship between endothelial extracellular vesicles, and the hemostatic effects of clotting factor 7a, and finally, look at long-term outcomes with the BTK inhibitor acalabrutinib in treatment-naive chronic lymphocytic leukemia patients. Our first paper, by Sundari Sormandy and Ben Wheelocks at Technische Universität in Dresden, Germany, Pablo Vargas at Institut Curie in Paris, and colleagues, looks at the hypoxia-inducible protein HIF2-alpha and its effects on neutrophil motility. In the innate immune response, neutrophils represent the first line of defense against infections, extravasating quickly from the circulation to inflamed tissues for rapid pathogen elimination. Accumulation of neutrophils in an inflamed area is a multi-step process, requiring directed migration and metabolic reprogramming to allow the cells to survive in a hypoxic environment. Adaptation to reduced oxygen pressure is typically mediated by hypoxia pathway proteins, including the transcription factors HIF1-alpha and 2-alpha. These in turn are regulated upstream by a class of oxygen sensors known as the HIF-prolyl hydroxylase domain enzymes, or PHD1, 2, and 3. When oxygen levels decrease, PHDs are inactivated, which results in HIF stabilization and increased transcription of relevant target genes. In this study, the authors sought to determine if the PHD-HIF axis governs neutrophil migration and or metabolic reprogramming focusing specifically on the roles of PHD2 and HIF2-alpha. The investigators employed mice with a knockout of the PHD2 gene, dubbed P2 mice, which resulted in upregulation of HIF2-alpha activity, and also mice with a double knockout of PHD2 and HIF2-alpha, dubbed P2H2 mice. Using these mouse models, the team first studied the movement of bone marrow-derived neutrophils in one and two dimensions using artificial channels of varying constriction. Neutrophils from P2 mice moved significantly faster than those from wild-type mice. However, when the HIF2-alpha gene was also deleted, the migration rates returned to baseline levels, strongly suggesting that activation of the PHD2-HIF2-alpha pathway regulates neutrophil migration speed in highly confined channels. The team then tested the neutrophil populations in three-dimensional collagen matrices of different pore sizes, mimicking the movement of the cell once it arrives in the interstitial tissue after extravasation. They found that P2 neutrophils showed greater motility than wild-type cells, but only in highly dense collagen microenvironments. Of note, in this model system, HIF2-alpha was not required for the enhanced motility, suggesting that PHD2 may be working through other targets. Interestingly, the enhanced migration due to PHD2 loss was only seen with random migration, not when the neutrophils were made to follow a chemotactic gradient with CXCL2 chemokine. The researchers next look at the in vivo behavior of neutrophils in the setting of sterile skin inflammation. They showed that following experimentally induced inflammation of mouse earlobes, P2 neutrophils extravasated approximately 30% more rapidly from the vessel into the ear tissue, 
compared to wild-type counterparts. This difference in migration was abolished in P2H2 neutrophils, confirming a role for HIF2-alpha activity and driving increased migration rate in vivo. Subsequent experiments yielded additional insights. First, although HIF2-alpha directly controlled the migration speed of neutrophils in confined spaces and inflamed tissues, this effect was independent of cell survival or glycolytic activity. Second, differences in cell membrane lipid composition were determined to be unlikely to account for the dramatic difference in migratory capacity. And third, significant HIF2-alpha independent changes in glycolytic capacity and immune response of PHD2-deficient neutrophils were found to be likely linked to HIF1-alpha activity, as suggested by previous authors. The authors also identified a number of HIF2-alpha-dependent gene signatures associated with PHD2 deficiency that were related to function and structure of the neutrophil cytoskeleton, including Rho GTPase activity. They found that P2 neutrophils, but not dual knockout cells, displayed altered GTPase activity, suggesting that the observed regulation of Rho GTPase is dependent on the PHD2 HIF2 alpha axis. Together with additional experimental approaches, the team's findings strongly argued for a PHD2 HIF2 alpha orchestrated regulatory loop in Rho A GTPase activity dependent neutrophil motility. Finally, they tested the biological effects of the enhanced migratory capacity of PHD2 deficient neutrophils, employing an autoantibody induced inflammatory arthritis mouse model that has been shown to be myeloid dependent. They demonstrated that P2 mice displayed increased swelling, whereas P2H2 mice did not. In conclusion, the research shows that specific proteins of the hypoxia pathway control neutrophil motility exclusively in highly restricted environments. Furthermore, the work identifies PHD2 HIF2-alpha Rho A as a novel axis that promotes neutrophil movement in a chemotaxis-independent manner. In an accompanying commentary, Sean Colgan of the University of Colorado School of Medicine observes that the current research provides compelling evidence that stabilization of HIF2-alpha promotes motility of neutrophils specifically through highly constrained matrices. He cites of particular interest the finding that loss of Rho-A activity enhances motility. Seminal work in the field had previously used Rho-A deficient neutrophils to demonstrate increased chemokinesis and chemotaxis, an observation akin to that in the present work. This relationship is noteworthy because Rho-A activity may be associated with loss of PI3 kinase activity, which represents one of the major breaking mechanisms in neutrophil migration and is strongly tied to HIF-mediated signaling. Given the significant interest in the development of therapeutics around the HIF pathway, Dr. Colgan says that it is tempting to speculate whether this work may provide a rationale for treatment of inflammatory disorders. Substantial efforts have focused on the development of PHD inhibitors, which, based on the findings by these authors, could promote neutrophil migration with the potential to enhance bacterial clearance in immune-suppressed individuals. Clinical development efforts are also underway for direct inhibitors of HIF, for example, belzutifan, a novel oral HIF2-alpha inhibitor that could be imagined as an inhibitor of neutrophil migration in diseases where these cells might cause bystander tissue damage. Whether such approaches might prove beneficial in patients with inflammatory disorders is anxiously anticipated.
Next, we look at research by Kaushik Das and colleagues, led by Vyaja Mohan Rao at the University of Texas Health Science Center at Tyler, that examines the effect of clotting factor 7A on induction of endothelial extracellular vesicles, or EEVs, and the corresponding contribution to hemostatic effect. Factor 7A is responsible for initiating coagulation via its binding to tissue factor, which activates factor 10, the enzyme responsible for thrombin production. Factor 7A is widely used therapeutically to treat bleeding disorders in hemophilia patients with inhibitors and also to treat excessive bleeding events in other clinical scenarios. Previous studies by the current authors have shown that factor 7A also binds to endothelial cell protein C receptor, or EPCR, and induces protease-activated receptor 1, or PAR1-mediated signaling. Given that protease-induced cell signaling is known to induce cytoskeletal reorganization and release extracellular vesicles, the team sought to explore whether factor 7A-induced signaling releases EEVs and whether these vesicles modify hemostasis. Employing human and mouse endothelial cells, the team first demonstrated a marked, time-dependent increase in generation of EEVs in response to treatment with factor 7A. No increase was observed in EEVs derived from hematologic cells, platelets, monocytes, or erythrocytes, indicating that vascular endothelial cells are the cellular source of vesicles released into circulation following factor 7A administration. Exploring next the role of EPCR PAR1 signaling, experiments revealed that generation of factor 7A induced endothelial extracellular vesicles which we'll refer to here as 7A EEVs, was completely attenuated, following silencing of each receptor independently. Production of 7A EEVs was unaffected when other mediators, including tissue factor and PAR4, were blocked. Next, the researchers investigated the relationship between 7A EEVs and downstream mediators of coagulation and found that these EEVs increased activation of factor 10, and prothrombin by six to nine-fold. However, the findings left open the question of whether increased activation of these procoagulant mediators reflected the increased number of EEVs generated by factor 7A treatment, or if the effect was instead due to higher hemostatic activity of the individual vesicles themselves. Pursuing this line of inquiry, the team removed the quantitative variable by comparing the effects of an equal number of EEVs isolated from control and factor 7A treated endothelial cells. They found that even after normalization of EV number, 7A EEVs exhibited a threefold higher capacity to support factor 10 and prothrombin activation. In vivo replication of these experiments in mice yielded similar results. Finally, the researchers evaluated the effects of 7A EEVs on hemostatic function in platelet-depleted and hemophilia mouse models. They found first a significant reduction in injury-related blood loss and bleeding time following administration or in vivo generation of 7A EEVs. Increased thrombin generation was observed at the wound site, but only when circulating factor 7A was present at the time of injury. Fibrin generation also increased with the added observation that 7A EEVs, but not control EEVs, were found in the fibrin clot, indicating that 7A EEVs were selectively recruited to the wound site. Overall, this work shows that treatment with factor 7A induced the release of EEVs from the endothelium into circulation, 
via signaling through a Factor 7A EPCR PAR1 mediated pathway. In addition, Factor 7A derived endothelial EEVs were shown to possess increased procoagulant activity and provided enhanced protection from bleeding associated with platelet deficiency or hemophilia. In his commentary, Jeremy Wood of the University of Kentucky in Lexington notes that despite 30 years of use, the mechanisms by which Factor 7A promotes hemostatic clot formation are still being elucidated. He cites the current work for expanding our knowledge base by showing that Factor 7A is more than just a Factor 10 activator. Dr. Wood identifies numerous questions arising from the findings that can drive future research into both the pharmacologic properties of Factor 7A and normal hemostasis. For example, what properties of endothelial-derived EEVs compared to EEVs derived from other cells allow them to promote hemostasis? What unique lipid and or protein components do they possess that confer their functional properties, such as the ability to localize to an injury site? Also, does factor 7A promote EV formation at physiologic concentrations, or is this activity only relevant under therapeutic conditions? A complete characterization of these EEVs would help us better understand factor 7A function. He points also to the finding that factor 7A causes a procoagulant surface to form on the endothelial cell itself. Is this activation localized to the injury site, or is it systemic? And if factor 7A can induce a procoagulant surface in any endothelial cell that expresses both EPCR and PAR1, what mechanisms prevent these cells from promoting systemic clot formation? And could those mechanisms be exploited for future anticoagulant therapies? Dr. Wood concludes by noting that as these and other questions suggest, there is still much to learn about control of hemostasis and thrombosis and about the role of endothelial cells and EEVs in this process. Finally, we turn to a report of long-term outcomes with acalabrutinib in treatment-naive CLL by John Bird of Ohio State University Cancer Center in Columbus, William Wierda of the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, and colleagues. Brutin tyrosine kinase, or BTK, inhibitors, beginning with ibrutinib, have greatly altered the treatment landscape of CLL, the most prevalent adult leukemia. Acalabrutinib, a selective second-generation BTK inhibitor, is approved for both treatment-naive and relapsed refractory CLL, based on two Phase three studies, ELEVATE-TN and ASCEND. Based on indirect comparisons, Acalabrutinib appears to have comparable efficacy to ibrutinib, but a lower incidence of off-target side effects. The current report presents safety and efficacy data from longer-term treatment of patients enrolled in the first Phase 1-2 study of acalabrutinib in symptomatic untreated CLL, called the ACL001 study. Eligibility criteria at entry included adequate performance and organ status and absence of active infection. No restrictions for cytopenia were applied if CLL bone marrow involvement was present. Patients must have declined or been deemed by the investigator to have an unsuitable comorbidity profile for chemoimmunotherapy. 99 patients were included in the current analysis. Median age was 64 years, and two-thirds were male. Just under half of the subjects had high-risk disease by RI criteria. 
bulky lymph nodes of at least 5 centimeters were noted in 46% and 77% had beta-2 microglobulin level above 3.5. At enrollment, unmutated IGHV was identified in 62% of subjects, deletion 11q in 21%, deletion 17p in 10%, mutated TP53 in 14%, and complex karyotype in 18%. Most patients were treated with 100 mg twice daily, although 37 patients initially received acalabrutinib, 200 mg once daily, before crossing over to the twice-daily regimen when the latter proved to be superior. All treated patients were included in the full analysis. Overall median time on acalabrutinib was 53 months. At the time of reporting, 85 patients, or 86%, remained on therapy. Treatment discontinuation was most commonly due to an adverse event, development of a second primary cancer or serious infection. The most common AEs were diarrhea, headache, and upper respiratory tract infection, and most AEs were grade 2 or lower. Importantly, the incidence of adverse events diminished over time on study. Serious AEs were reported in 38% of patients overall, with the most common being pneumonia and sepsis. Two patients died while on study. Looking specifically at AEs of clinical interest, atrial fibrillation occurred in 5% of patients, hypertension in 22%, headaches in 45%, bleeding events in 66%, and infection in 84%. The incidence of AEs greater than or equal to grade 3 was 2% for AFib, 3% for bleeding, and 15% for infections. Two patients discontinued treatment due to infection. No discontinuations occurred due to the remaining categories. The overall response rate to acalabrutinib, including complete response, partial response, and partial response with lymphocytosis, was 97%. Best response was CR in 7% of patients and PR in 90%. No patient had best response of PR with lymphocytosis. Median time to first response was 3.7 months, and median time to CR was 33 months. Overall response rate for each of the high-risk subgroups, unmutated IGHV, deletion 17p, mutated TP53 and complex karyotype was 100%. Normalization of cytopenia occurred in 96% or more of patients with pretreatment anemia, neutropenia, or thrombocytopenia. Reduction of lymphadenopathy of at least 50% was observed in all patients but one. As of the current analysis, median duration of response, median progression-free survival, and median event-free survival in the full cohort have not been reached. Three patients experienced disease progression, with time to progression ranging from 25 to 40 months. Estimated 48-month duration of response, progression-free survival, and event-free survival were 97%, 96%, and 90% respectively. Median PFS and EFS were similarly not reached in patients with deletion 17p, and or mutated TP53 or complex karyotype. Estimated 48-month PFS and EFS were 82% and 75% respectively in the subgroup with deletion 17p and or mutated TP53 and 91% and 83% respectively in those with complex karyotypes. In summary, this Phase 1-2 study demonstrated long-term safety and durable remission in previously untreated symptomatic CLL and supports the use of acalabrutinib as first-line therapy in this patient population. In an accompanying editorial, Lucas Smolej of the University Hospital in Radek Krylov in the Czech Republic 
notes that the present study is important for several reasons. First, the results show excellent long-term efficacy of acalabrutinib in untreated CLL, based on a median follow-up nearly twice that reported in the Elevate-TN study, which compared acalabrutinib to chemotherapy and served as one of the pivotal studies for FDA approval. The study also provides additional data about the safety profile of acalabrutinib, further suggesting superiority to ibrutinib with regard to off-target side effects. The occurrence of grade 3 or above AEs of interest, notably atrial fibrillation, bleeding, and infection, was similar to the acalabrutinib arm in Elevate-TN. Dr. Smolej points out, however, that the reported occurrence of second primary malignancies in this study is relatively high, 26%. Although 58% of these were non-melanoma skin cancers, this finding suggests the need for further studies in larger trials with longer follow-up as well as vigilance in routine practice. One additional caveat is the relatively vague indication of ineligibility for chemoimmunotherapy in this study and the lack of data about comorbidities and creatinine clearance, which makes the study population less clearly defined in terms of fitness and organ function for the purpose of comparison with other trials. Finally, Dr. Smolej emphasizes that while the overall safety profile of acalabrutinib appears superior to ibrutinib, this observation is based on indirect cross-trial comparisons. Better understanding of the agent's relative safety awaits findings from the Phase 3 Elevate RR trial, a head-to-head -head study of acalabrutinib and ibrutinib in previously treated CLL results from which are expected next year. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.